listening to the Agent Survival Guide podcast. A podcast for today's insurance agents. Informing. Educating. Empowering. Improving the way you do business in an industry that's anything but static. In today's episode, if you have been listening to the show for a while, you know that I love compliance and That's probably a good thing because we have a lot of compliance rules in the Medicare industry and we need to follow those very specifically in order to be compliant. So today we are going to talk about some of the changes that CMS put forth in their final rule for coverage year 2024. Joining me today, so glad to have you here on the podcast, Allison Sigmund, compliance guru here at Ritter Insurance Marketing. I'm very excited to be here today. As Sarah mentioned, my name is Allison Sigmund. I am the compliance and risk management lead here at Ritter. CMS put out quite the list of requirements and updates this year, and we could probably talk about them for a couple of hours, but we're not going to do that. But we will start off with the origin story. So, Allison, can you tell me more about why we have so many compliance updates this year? Correct. So, CMS released their contract year 2024 final rule in which they outlined all of the changes that will impact the Medicare insurance market for the contract year 2024. The reason why CMS made those changes is they have an obligation and a duty to protect beneficiaries. So the changes that they outlined, which changed the processes and how carriers, insurance agents, so on and so forth, interact with Medicare beneficiaries, all of those were made with a goal of further protecting beneficiaries. Right. Now, one thing I do like about how we cover compliance at Ritter is that rather than focus on all the rules and just list verbatim, this is what CMS says, your department does a great job of picking out a list you know, hey, agents, this is specifically what you should be focusing on this year. So how did you go about choosing the rules? So what we kind of highlight and what we focus on, because there are a lot of changes Mm -hmm. and not all of them have a very direct impact on the way that agents are out there interacting, representing themselves, Mm -hmm. operating their businesses. We really focus on the changes that will have an impact, how agents are out selling, operating their businesses, how they're marketing themselves, so on and so forth. Okay. Let's maybe start with the one we've all been preparing for in advance of the rule that will go into effect on September 30th. That is the rule that prohibits the use of government products and information in a misleading way, and specifically, no more using the Medicare name. Correct. Well, so specifically, the Medicare, the term Medicare cannot be used in a misleading manner. Unfortunately, that's fairly subjective. It's not a very objective of, you know, you may do this because misleading, what is misleading for one person might not be misleading for another, but that's the way the rule is written. Now that does impact a wide variety of uses of the term Medicare, whether that be within certain materials, website names, business names, so on and so forth. If that usage could be misleading in a way in which a beneficiary, the recipient of that material may believe that they are interacting with somebody directly from the federal government, that usage would be problematic. I also wanted to add in here, the usage of the Medicare ID card Mm -hmm. is also restricted unless that usage has been directly reviewed and approved by CMS. 
CMS themselves. Right. And hopefully that will take care of some of those commercials. We, we all kind of know those commercials at this point. So this role is really why we did the rebrand of Medicareful to Shop and Enroll so that we're compliant because we have to be compliant just like you guys have to be compliant. And that process really started with a huge review of what we are putting out there to our agents. So how can agents sort of do that same type of analysis on their own materials? So my recommendation for agents would be to take an overall stock and overall inventory of all of their materials, their website names and URLs that they utilize, materials, whether they be marketing or just, you know, generic, all materials, and reviewing those to determine what uses they have of the term Medicare and making sure that where they have those uses, Mm -hmm. that usage wouldn't be problematic. It's, you know, not misleading. And just kind of making adjustments as they're needed and appropriate to do so. Okay. That is kind of one of the things that I'm sure you guys have been getting a lot of questions about. Another thing when it comes to those marketing materials, what about that third-party marketing organization disclaimer change? That is the, the TPMO disclaimer. Correct. So in contract year 2023, just to go back in time a little bit, CMS released the TPMO disclaimer. It was about a two-sentence disclaimer. For contract year 2024, they have updated that disclaimer. Okay. So the new and updated TPMO disclaimer, agents or really anybody using that TPMO disclaimer, so all TPMOs, <laughs> would have to include the number of organizations and the number of plans offered within a service area mm-hmm. and ship information. Now, those numbers that... TPMOs would have to fill in the blanks for. Those are determined based off of the residential zip code of the recipient of the material. So it'll slightly vary depending on what zip code that person is within when they're getting that TPMO disclaimer and then updating those numbers accordingly. There will be a graphic up. You know, agents, feel free to take a screenshot of that graphic so that way you have a copy of the TPMO disclaimer. Right. And this disclaimer, I believe, is the one for if you do not represent all Medicare Advantage and Part D plans within an agent's service area. So agents, you can use this template, add in the number of organizations you represent, and then the number of plans, and you'll be good to go. Allison, what about if an agent does actually represent all of the Medicare Advantage and Part D plans in their service area? Right. So the disclaimer, there is still a disclaimer. The disclaimer is slightly different. TPMOs would still have to put the number of organizations and the number of plans in according to the zip code that they're putting out that disclaimer for, but it is slightly different. So agents, again, feel free to take a screenshot of the slightly different disclaimer that is currently presenting. And then I believe we also have this information available in a PDF, correct? We have that information available on the Ritter Doc site. So those TPMO disclaimers, we have some of our summit materials mm-hmm. that would be available and linked on the Doc site, and that is up and accessible 24-7, 365 days a year. Okay. Now that was a great visual example of how to kind of present this disclaimer, but what other times do agents need to present this disclaimer? Because I'm sure it's not just something that is a visual disclaimer. Right. So the TPMO disclaimer needs to be provided 
in four different situations or in four different manners. One, the first minute of a sales call, the second being on TPMO websites, the third being electronic communications such as emails, and then the fourth being any marketing materials. Okay. Now, how do you implement a disclaimer like this on a phone call? So for a phone call, and I know that we'll be discussing it later, this is kind of where that whole 48-hour scope of appointment rule comes in handy, which we'll get into more detail here shortly. But for this, you know, the initial call where you're getting information about an individual, either, you know, you're responding where you have permission to contact or they've contacted you and you are setting up time to talk with them about plans at least 48 hours later during that initial call, getting their contact information as applicable and getting their zip code as well Mm -hmm. as then providing them a scope of appointment to complete. That gives you then that 48 hours at least to do Mm -hmm. the research to give them a very accurate TPMO disclaimer when you do get on a sales call, because again, that would have to be provided within the first minute of that sales call. Okay, that makes sense. Now, what about on our websites or even in email signatures? I heard you mention that. Right. So on websites or within an email signature, cases or uses of the TPMO disclaimer in those situations is a little bit unique. Because obviously, it's pretty static. You don't always know who's going to be visiting your website. And then when you're emailing somebody, you might not yet know what zip code they're in to even be able to fill in those blanks or change them up. Unfortunately, we haven't received a lot of firm guidance on exactly how those situations are supposed to be handled. So kind of a recommendation that we've heard and that we've put together and shared is that agents could work on figuring out an average or a highly conservative figure of what they represent within the areas that they operate within. And then using those numbers within those capacities. And then once contact is made with a person and you are able to get their zip code, then you're able to do the research to provide a very accurate number to them. Gotcha. What about marketing materials? Because it seems like marketing materials might be kind of similar that, you know, you don't really know your audience. So I would actually say that the requirement for it to be on a marketing material is a little bit beneficial to an agent. (laughs) And the reason being is once a material is considered marketing, not only is there this whole disclaimer requirement, Mm -hmm. but there are also a lot of filing requirements that go into place. And it does become quite complicated for agents to complete those processes or, like you mentioned, put in the right figures Mm -hmm. within those materials. As a little bit of an education, a material is only considered marketing if it meets two requirements. Mm -hmm. One, it has to have intent, which all advertisements do. It's the purpose of an advertisement. Right. And the second one being it has to have content. So it has to have planned details, planned benefits, you know, something that defines itself with a carrier, with a plan, with an actual specific benefit. So as long as the material doesn't meet those two requirements of intent and content, the material would be considered just a generic communication, and in which case it would not require the TPMO disclaimer. So just given how difficult the TPMO disclaimer can be to actually Mm -hmm. implement, along with, like I mentioned, other disclaimers and filing processes, Mm -hmm. we do strongly, strongly recommend that agents keep their materials highly generic to avoid any issues related to implementing these requirements. Okay. So kind of got into a little bit of the marketing updates that CMS announced in the final rule as well. As we're talking about marketing now, 
there were a couple updates, I believe, on what we can and can't say. And we all know this is something that CMS is pretty straightforward and they don't mess around with. You know, there are some things you can do. There are some things you absolutely cannot do. What do those things look like for this year? Right. So a few of those prohibitions or a few of those restrictions that are now in place, CMS has prohibited the use of superlatives in most marketing unless you can substantiate that claim, either using current or prior year data as relevant. They have prohibited marketing benefits where they're not available unless that marketing within an area is unavoidable, like a local newspaper or a local TV ad, where that may service uh, several zip codes. Next would be prohibiting the marketing of generalized savings. And then it does require if an advertisement includes certain benefits that the agent or really anybody putting out that marketing would have to include the plan's name within that piece. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. So those mandates on what we can and can't say. Now, how would you recommend an agent go about staying compliant with all of those different rules? Because it's a lot to keep up with. Right. And, you know, as mentioned with the TPMO disclaimer, you know, as soon as a piece is considered marketing, not only are there, you know, some disclaimer requirements, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, in this prohibition where if a benefit's mentioned, you have to list the plans or the carriers who are actually offering that benefit. It just gets highly complicated. So our recommendation is that agents focus more on generic communications, staying away from including actual content. That way those pieces aren't considered marketing. With really keeping a focus on the agent services, who they are as an agent, and then their contact information. So that way when somebody gets it, they know that that person's a licensed insurance agent. Here's their services. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and give them a call so that way Mm -hmm. they could help me. I mean, really focusing on keeping it highly generic. Right, right. Pretty much err on the side of caution. And, you know, it's always good to go with education as kind of what you're trying to do with these materials, because honestly, you're going to end up with much more evergreen materials. You're not going to just be able to use them for one AEP. You're going to be able to use them even outside of the AEP, hopefully. Now, as far as our next one here, I kind of feel like it's a little bit of the elephant in the room. We did mention it a smidge, but let's talk about that CMS decision to go back to a 48-hour scope of appointment. What exactly does this rule require of agents? Right. So we have jumped in a little bit of a time machine. We have gone a little (laughs) bit back in time. The 48-hour rule is back, which means that a scope of appointment needs to be acquired and completed at least 48 hours prior to, you know, a marketing sales appointment with a beneficiary. Now, I will say this year they did provide two exceptions to that rule. So the 48-hour rule does not apply if that beneficiary is within the last four days of an enrollment period in which they're eligible or if that beneficiary walks in physically to an agent's office space. If it's an unscheduled walk-in appointment, then the 48 hours wouldn't apply. So if a beneficiary were to come into an agent's office space, it was unscheduled and they just, you know, showed up, Mm -hmm. the agent wouldn't certainly need to send them away. They would be able to still do a scope, but then would be able to continue on with a plan presentation. Right, right. And I'm actually glad you mentioned those exceptions because I was just going to ask about that. I think CMS got a lot of questions about that when the initial proposed rule came out. So I'm glad they kind of came back on that and gave a little bit of clarification. 
They also clarified timeframes on scopes of appointment and business reply cards in the final rule, didn't they? Correct. So CMS helped clarify, and I think it's a big benefit that there is now a firm timeframe that has been defined, clarified. So scope of appointments, business reply cards, those sorts of materials are now effective for up to 12 months. Okay. Now, once the scope of appointment, for example, is used, so say like an enrollment's completed, you know, you get the scope, do the plan presentation, enrollment's completed, at that point it's used, certainly you wouldn't be able to reuse that scope within the same 12 months. You would have to get a new scope, but that scope is allowed to be used within that 12-month period at least once. Okay. Now, what what is the takeaway for agents here with that? So regarding implementation, which can be a little difficult because agents are kind of going back to a time in which 48 hours was the norm, you know, I will say, and maybe it's a little bit of a shameless Ritter plug, you know, technology, Ritter has an electronic scope of appointment on our shop and enroll site. So if agents were to work with their clients to either help direct them to their shop and enroll site or email a link of that scope of appointment, you know, that could be done. Like I mentioned, that initial information gathering meeting. Mm -hmm. So that way the beneficiary could go ahead and get that done. And then the agent and the beneficiary could decide on a meeting time at least 48 hours later. So I really think because our technology is out there where we do have that electronic scope of appointment, that'll really help facilitate the whole 48-hour rule. But I would want to add us like a little disclaimer <laughs> because in compliance, we love our disclaimers. <laughs> if I had mentioned, you know, emailing a link over, one thing to keep in mind that's very important is there may be other regulations or other acts or requirements that may be in place depending on that sort of communication. So if an email is sent, the agent would still need to abide by the rules outlined in the CAN-SPAM Act. So just a friendly reminder, depending on how an agent is interacting, of course, there are CMS's rules, but there may be other rules, regulations, and laws in place that they need to abide by. Right. So that kind of handles the initial process of everything. We can move along into the sales process. There were some changes here as well. Can we get into those? Right. So CMS now requires agents to cover certain topics. And really, those were the, the topics were defined in an effort to make sure that agents are covering the very important aspects within a plan and marketing presentation. So making sure primary care doctors and pharmacies and and emergency rooms or, you know, preferred specialists are all within a plan. So that way a beneficiary doesn't get into a plan that then doesn't actually meet their needs. Making sure that beneficiaries clearly understand their benefits, their premiums, how much it's going to cost, are there network restrictions. So those requirements were always in place, but CMS clearly has provided a bit more guidance and direction on how that has to be done. Right. Like we said, those are things agents, you're probably doing those things already, but now there's a nice list that outlines all of those. Can you go over what is required on that pre-enrollment checklist? So the pre-enrollment checklist covers a couple of different items. So the evidence of coverage, provider directory, pharmacy directory, formulary, so on and so forth. One of the changes that they made is that pre-enrollment checklist has to be reviewed and in some cases provided with the beneficiary at the time of enrollment. Another change that they made was they added effective current coverage within the pre-enrollment checklist. So agents do need to take the time to explain to a beneficiary how this enrollment is going to impact their current coverage. Mm -hmm. You know, if they do have other coverage, is it going to stop? 
that needs to be clearly explained. One thing I do want to add, every carrier might have their own pre-enrollment checklist. Okay. So it is very important for agents to check with the carriers and use any required materials that that, that carrier that they're enrolling mm-hmm. the beneficiary in a plan with, that they are completing those required materials. Okay. And we actually have a compliance sales checklist to help agents implement this step, correct? Right. So we do have one available on the Ritter Doc site under the mm-hmm. compliance section. I will say that is not, that's not like a, it doesn't supersede or take over or replace any carrier specific required materials. We put that together more as like a best practice guide. It includes a lot of information, but we did a lot of research from a lot of different materials to put together this very, very detailed sales checklist. Maybe I'm a little biased. I think it's a really good resource for agents to kind of, you know, there might be some smaller aspects that are still important to cover during a marketing appointment that might be mentioned in our checklist that kind of helps flick off that light bulb of, you know, oh, I've really got to make sure that I cover that when I meet with my beneficiaries this year. So I think it's a pretty good resource. I'm a little bit biased, but I think it would be helpful. But again, it does not replace any carrier required materials, including the pre-enrollment checklist. Right. So kind of check and double check. Always make sure that you're doing what your carriers ask you to do. Now, in addition to the sales process, there were a couple changes made to event planning. Specifically, these changes were for educational events, correct? Correct. So agents will no longer be allowed to collect scope of appointments or set up future personal marketing appointments at an educational event. But CMS did outline that agents are still allowed to make business reply cards Mm -hmm. or permission to contact forms available at an educational event. Um, And then agents are still allowed, of course, to provide their own, you know, their business cards, contact information that can still be made available. They're just not allowed to collect the scope of appointments or set up personal marketing appointments. Gotcha. And then what about what happens after the educational events? Because that's changed a little bit, too. A little bit. So before this change, agents could have had an educational event and then, you know, kind of shortly after do a marketing and a sales event. Now, the requirement is that an agent may not hold a marketing event in the same location within 12 hours of the educational event, with same location being defined as the entire building or adjacent buildings. So that's a little bit of a change because, you know, you can't just have a little bit of a window and then switch over. You certainly got to have enough time between the two if you're going to Mm -hmm. keep it at the same location. Right. Let's move on to our last category here. And this is a kind of a catch-all of all the updates and clarifications. So if it seems a little hodgepodge, it is. We, we understand that. CMS often does this. If they get a lot of comments or questions on a rule, they'll come out and give a clarification. So what do we have here? So the first one that comes to mind for, you know, I wouldn't say random, but, you know, things that popped a up <laughs> a little bit. That popped up during the rule, CMS clarified their prohibition on door-to-door contact. So an agent may not show up at a beneficiary's home without a scheduled appointment with the beneficiary, even if the agent has, you know, a business reply card or, you know, some sort of document allowing them to make contact. They certainly can't just show up at the beneficiary's home. If they wanted to meet with a beneficiary in their home, that appointment needs to be scheduled ahead of time. And the agent, you know, should really only be going there during that scheduled time frame. 
Right. This one surprised me because, quite honestly, I thought it was pretty well set in stone. You know, you don't sell Medicare door to door. You can sell other things, plenty of other things, but not Medicare door to door. What else do we have here? So the next thing that comes to mind, as you may remember, for contract year 2023, last year's final rule, CMS put out this call recording requirement, which created a bit of a shakeup for a lot of agents. So they have clarified this call recording requirement. Call recording used to be all calls with a beneficiary. Now it is sales, marketing, or enrollment-related calls. To add another little disclaimer here, (laughs) marketing calls include retention-based marketing. So all of those calls, sales, marketing, enrollment, retention-based marketing, (laughs) all of those do have to be recorded, which is a little bit of a thankful clarification. Another clarification they provided And I imagine this one was based off of receiving probably quite a few questions from agents is if the agent were to be meeting with a beneficiary using some sort of technology, so Zoom, FaceTime, what have you, where they're meeting, it's over the phone, but they can see each other. They have clarified that those technology-based calls, the audio portion of the call does have to be recorded, but not the video portion. So you can go camera off for that one, but you would have to record the audio still. Right. And that can sometimes help, you know, put a beneficiary at ease or, you know, take that whole awkwardness away of the camera is, you know, right here in our face. So mainly just clarifying what needs to be recorded, drawing differences between those three types of calls. And quite honestly, I mean, having the ability to store all of those video calls, I can't even imagine what that data would require. I think we're kind of at the end of our list, Allison. I think that's it. I think so. It's a bit of a long list. It was a long list. (laughs) There's a lot, but I think we covered everything. Okay. We mentioned a lot of rules. We also mentioned quite a few resources in our conversation. So what should agents do if they still have questions? Right. So if an agent were to have some questions based off of, you know, either a meeting today, anything that they've read or other chatter that they've heard, because... There's a lot of communication being shared at this time as we all get ready. So as I mentioned, the Ritter Doc site is always available. That's through the Ritter platform. But a different resource would be the ability for agents to email a member of the compliance team. So the email address on the screen at the moment is an email that agents can, you know, agents can email into and any member of the compliance team, we are small but mighty. We will be in touch. That includes answering questions, reviewing materials to advise on maybe some changes or disclaimers that would need to be added or or what have you to materials. That is a way to get in contact with a member of our team. Okay. Yeah, I would definitely recommend, please reach out to the compliance team here. They're here to help. We are here to help. That's why we have this partnership going on is because we want to help you succeed this AEP. Just want to say thank you so much for sticking with us through this conversation. I know compliance is not always the most interesting thing to talk about. It's interesting to us. Um, But thank you, Allison, so much for your time and for answering our questions here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Allison Sigmund for taking the time to sit down and chat with me in the studio. Also, want to say thank you to our producer, George, for his help recording the video for this episode, which if you attended the Florida Summit, you got to hear and see our conversation. 
Now, Allison and I mentioned a few resources during our conversation, and unfortunately, visuals do not transfer over into the audio version of the podcast. The TPMO disclaimers, the link to the compliance section of Ritter Docs, and the email to get in touch with our compliance team, all of those are linked in our episode notes. So please take advantage of that information. If you've got questions about compliance, use that compliance email in the episode notes. Reach out. Ask the team your question. We're implementing a lot of changes, so it's natural to have some questions about those changes and how to go about making sure you're compliant. And of course, if you like this episode, if you're liking our interview episodes, Follow along with us and let us know. Thanks again for listening to this installment of the Agent Survival Guide podcast. We will see you next episode. The Agent Survival Guide podcast is a production of Ritter Insurance Marketing, an integrity company. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Sarah Rupel. Additional production by George Hevel. Special thanks to Allison Sigmund for the interview. Script proofing by Tina Lamaru. Podcast design by Urban Rivera. Artwork by Vivian Zhao.